You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Would our hearts just be moved to give? All right. In case you don't know, we'll be in the Ten Commandments for approximately ten weeks. Uh, We're going to be looking at the idea of law and love and how do they intersect in our lives. How can Ten Commandments from ye olden days apply to our life when we live with Christ? And they really do. And they're a great mixture of law and love for us this morning. They show us the heart of the Father. So we're going to kind of dive into it this morning, um, getting an overview of the Ten Commandments, an overview of law, an overview of love in the history of Israel, uh, because before we can dive into how they might apply to our lives individually, kind of need some background. So we'll give you some history, and we'll go from here. Um, I, uh, in preparation for this series, I spent several weeks reading over the commandments in the Old Testament. Uh, there are quite a few of them, and we'll kind of discuss that a little bit today, about 613 of them, to say the least that the Old Testament folks had compiled from the Word of God. 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments. Now, my hope and my dream was to have fit all 613 on this chalkboard, this tablet. Um, And I didn't didn't think about how much 613 is, right? Like, oh, that's a lofty idea. I'll just get this nice little design up here, and I'll put 613 laws behind it. And it was a great idea. I think I made it down here... The last one, not to favor idols, I think is right around number, like, 42, okay? Um, There is a weight to the law. People who lived under the law in the Old Testament carried this weight upon them because 613 laws is very difficult to live through. Um, So let's back up the story just a minute. You all have read Genesis, or maybe you've had it read to you, right? Right? God created the whole world, right? He's the creator God. We've talked about that in the past couple weeks. God created everything that there is on heaven and under, um, in the waters below, and so forth and so on. And then he created Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of creation, beautiful creation, man and woman. And he set them in the garden, and he said, listen, I love you all. You live in perfect communion with me. This is great. Just don't eat of that tree. That one tree, don't eat of it. And what they did in a moment of pride... Um, Eve listened to the serpent, believed a lie, and said, well, maybe God doesn't really love me, and maybe I really need to work for my own well-being. I'm just going to take a bite. So she took a bite of the fruit. And in that moment, sin entered the world. She enticed her husband to do the same. They mutually fell at the same time from the grace of God. God sent them out of the garden as a punishment for breaking his rule, his don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And we would say, this is a horrible thing. Why would God send them out? Why would God protect the tree of life with an angel with a flaming sword? Why would he be so mean? But the reality is, if Adam and Eve in their fallen state had eaten from that tree of life, they would have been stuck forever in the death of their sin. God said, I want something more for my children. I want something more than them to be enslaved in sin for the rest of their life. I want to give them life and freedom and hope, but that's going to take some working out. So he sent them out of the garden and sacrificed animals for them to cover their body with skin from the animals, the first sacrifice for sin. So from that moment on, people have lived in sin. You're familiar with this story. 
time has passed, the, uh, the Noah and the flood happens, so forth and so on, the Bible goes through, until you've got a population called the nation of Israel. We're down through time now. The nation of Israel, through some circumstances of sin and stupidity and some various other things, end up in slavery to the nation of Egypt, a great power in the day. There was a guy named Pharaoh, and he had, um, he had distrust of this great nation that lived within his borders. And so he said, I'm worried that they're going to overtake me, and so I'm going to enslave them. I'm going to take away all of their rights, all of their freedoms. I'm going to give them the base that they need to survive, and I'm going to make them work really hard to build my kingdom. It's not how God had designed his people. God had designed his people to build God's kingdom on earth, not Pharaoh's kingdom. So God, being a jealous God, one who loves his name and loves his people, said, this isn't acceptable. People have been in slavery for far too long. I'm going to bust them out of slavery. So you know the story. Moses has escaped from Egypt under the penalty of death. He has run away, and he's a shepherd in Midian. He's just tending the sheep one day. And he must have been a pyromaniac. He must have loved fire because there was a burning bush, and that immediately got his attention. He walked by it and thought, well, that's cool. I wonder what's going on. So he walked over to the burning bush and God spoke to him. You're familiar with this story. God said, Moses, I have something I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And the dialogue went on for a while between God and and, uh, Moses because Moses was a scaredy cat and didn't want to go speak to Pharaoh for many reasons. He had no problem telling Jehovah the Lord, Yahweh, I'm just not comfortable with this. He talked back to the Lord, argued with the Lord, but would not go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So the Lord said, you can bring your brother with you. You can go talk to the Lord. He will be the mouthpiece, but I will give the message to you to give to him. So the story continues that Moses goes down and basically sets the people free. God hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again. There were the plagues. There was a great weeping one night Because of the sin of Pharaoh, a whole generation of Egyptian boys died. The penalty for sin is death, and in one night, Egypt understood that quite well. The nation of Israel was released, and as the video summed up for us, Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, chased after Israel. But when the Red Seas were parted for Israel, they were closed upon Egypt, and God did a great work for his people, redeeming them from slavery in Egypt and setting them free to wander the desert towards the promised land. Now, we pick up the story here in Exodus 19. I'm going to read to you a section. Um, Exodus 19, uh, verses 3 through 11, we're going to do this morning. And this is where we are. We are at the base of Sinai, the big mount where God meets Moses again, this time not in a burning bush, but in a burning mountaintop that quakes with thunder and lightning. And anyone in the near vicinity and probably the great distances would know that something is going on at this mountain. Something life-changing is happening because this kind of encounter had not yet been seen before. So three months after they'd left Egypt and they'd seen Egypt swallowed by the waters, they have reached Sinai. And God tells Moses something very important. He says, Moses... I want you to be the leader of my people. And my people are the ones that have been set free. They're the ones at the base of the mountain. And this is the conversation that transpired. Israel at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verses 3 through 11. 
Israel encamped before the mountain, and Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and you shall tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the nation of Israel. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set them before them the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all of the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses went back up the mountain and reported to the Lord the words of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people will hear when I speak with you, and they will also believe in you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord to Moses said, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. This is um, not your typical Ten Commandments beginning passage. People skip this one. But this is really important to the foundation of the Ten Commandments. See, Moses went up and heard from the Lord and said, Listen, uh, Moses, I want you to tell the people that I want them to be my people, that I've claimed them, that I've literally pulled them out of slavery and I want to give them freedom. But... I have done some great things for them, and I've demonstrated how powerful I am. Now I want them to agree that they will be my people. There's a covenant that's taking place here. It's the covenant in the line of Abraham where God came through and said, Listen, I am your God, and you will be my people, and I will make you a great nation. You don't have to do anything. I will just do this for you. That's called a unilateral covenant. Two parties, but one of the parties upholds all the end of the bargain, okay? The other party has no power to uphold it. Unilateral covenant. God said to Abraham, I will make you a nation more than the stars in the sky. Abraham couldn't do that on his own. God did that. It's a unilateral covenant. And down through the generations, God meets with Moses and says, basically, that covenant that I made with Abraham, it's being lived out at the base of the mountain right now. Here is the nation of Israel. Countless numbers of people. Now I want to confirm with them that they will be my people. So go down and ask them. Will you be my people? Look at what I've done for you. Look at how I've saved you. Will you respond by loving me today at the mountain? And the people said, well, yeah. Look at what you did for us. Of course we'll love you. Of course we'll follow you. Of course we'll listen to your commands and we'll follow them and we'll obey them and we'll take them to heart and we'll do them. We will be your people. We like the idea of being holy and consecrated and set apart and protected and cherished and sought after and forgiven and all of these things. Yeah, we are on board with this. So Moses ran back up the mountain. He's getting good exercise, right? Up and down and up and down. He ran back up the mountain and he told God and God said, good. And so Exodus 20, God descends upon the mountain, right? And there's this thunder and there's this lightning and there's this big cloud. And I, you've seen it maybe in, I think, of um, uh, the Ten Commandments movie that I always watch at Easter time, right? Um, with Charlton Heston. And there's this, anyway, it's kind of the mental image I get. Anyway, <clears throat> Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives the covenant from God. Written on stone tablets. We're familiar with this in Exodus 21 through 17. That Israel's mediator, Moses, is going up the mountain to mediate this covenant with God 
where God is saying, I'm going to write on these stone tablets what I expect of the people of Israel. They are the tablets of the covenant of God with Israel. And so Moses is up on the mountain and Israel is hearing the thunder and the lightning and he is up there for quite some time. And while Moses was up there mediating the covenant that God was giving to him, what were the people of Israel doing down at the base of the mountain? They were breaking all the commandments. That's right. Every single one of them. Um, I love the Old Testament because it's literally just a picture of the New Testament. It's just a foretelling of what's going to come. In Exodus 32, it chronicles the law-breaking that the people of Israel did while Moses was receiving this covenant. Um, It says that while Israel was sinning, God covenanted to be their leader, their father, their protector, their benefactor. Um, While Israel was sinning at the base of the mountain, God was making a covenant with Moses to be their leader. Does that sound like the New Testament? While we were yet still sinning, Christ died for us. While Israel was yet sinning, God was working out a covenant for their well-being. This is a picture of what Christ does for us in our lives And it took place on Sinai in uh, Exodus 20 and Exodus 32. See, the people didn't repent. Um, Moses interceded for them while the people had not yet repented for the sin that they had done. That's in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses went up to God after seeing all of the horrible base of the mountain activities. He went up to God... And said, listen, if I have found favor in your sight, Lord, if I am the one that you have chosen to intercede for your people, let me intercede for them. Have mercy on these people because they don't know what they're doing. Would you forgive them? I hadn't even gotten a chance to give them the Ten Commandments yet. They didn't know they were breaking the law. Would you please have mercy on the people and forgive them? Now that sounds vaguely familiar too, doesn't it? That sounds vaguely familiar, like the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Two covenants being wrought out. One of them at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, and they were sinning while it was being wrought out for them on stone tablets. And an interceder goes up to the top of the mountain and says to God, they don't know what they're doing. Would you forgive them? Would you give them a chance? Would you still love them? Would you still be their covenant God? Would you still uphold all of the promises even though they've broken theirs? And down in time, several thousand years, on a cross, the covenant is written in Jesus' blood. Then it's poured out for everyone when God said, listen, I will look upon him and I will forget your sin. It was wrought out in Jesus' body, not in stone tablets. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He interceded for us on the cross. And so, in the Old Testament, there was this, within three months of being freed, They had sinned and then received the law and then sinned and then it kind of went like that for a while. They said, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we repent. And they repented. There was some punishment there at the base of the mountain to be sure. Some people died for some sins that occurred. But God forgave his people, gave them an opportunity to look upon something that was lifted high. Moses said, listen, look upon this snake. If you look upon this snake, you'll be forgiven. Now, there's a story that goes behind that. Snakes were causing some problems there. They were um, having some difficulty. So look upon the snake that was lifted high, and you will receive forgiveness. 
again, a foretelling of Christ, who is lifted high, that if you look to Christ on the cross, you will be forgiven. Consequently, that's the, the emblem of the medical everything that we know today, the little crest with the snake that's wrapped around it. That's where that comes from, um, out of the scripture passage of the snake being lifted high and people looking to it and receiving healing. Uh, well, factoid for you guys there. Anyway, um, nation of Israel received the Ten Commandments at this point, and then they set out for the Promised Land. But did they get there rapidly? No. The distance between Egypt and the Promised Land, very, very short. But God said, listen, I want to work out this covenant in you, and I want it to be for the good of you and all the people who are far off. So just like the Garden of Eden, when God sent them out, there was some consequence for sin. And he said, all of you who participated in this, you will not get to see the Promised Land. The next generation will get to see the promised land. So for 40 years, you're going to wander. Then I'm going to teach you some lessons about me and who I am and my love for you and my provision for you. I want you to trust me very much. So they went through this desert life cycle for 40 years. There's a fancy term for what people of Israel did. It's called the apostasy cycle. It literally means, we love you, God. We love you, God. Now we're sinning. Now we're sinning. Now we're really, really sorry. We love you, God. We love you, God. Now we're sinning. Now we're sinning. Oh, we're really sorry. We love you. Does that sound familiar in your own life? Right? You do really good for a while. You love the Lord with all of your heart. Then you fall into sin, and maybe it's one that caught you by surprise, or maybe it's that one that just holds on and you have difficulty getting rid of. And then, you know, I'm so sorry, God. I, man, I've just messed up. Please make me new again. And then you're following him for a while, but... It happens. It's cyclical. And the people in the Old Testament in the desert went through that for a while. God gave them grace despite their sins to stand up and live a pleasing life to him. It was immediately seen because he gave them gifts to build the tabernacle. Immediately God said, I forgive you. Now build the tabernacle. I'm going to give you gifts of cloth and you gifts of woodwork and you gifts of metal and you gifts of... It was like Shazam. Spiritual gifts were going out left and right. And the people of Israel came together to be holy and to build a temple for worship for him. They brought that temple wherever they went, symbolizing God's presence with him, with them. But then they struggled, and um, then they went to the tabernacle, and they repented of their sin. And they, you know, the cycle went on and on for 40 years. And then, 40 years later, they were anticipating the entrance of the promised land. Moses was getting ready to hand off leadership to Joshua. God said, you're not going to be able to enter the promised land. You were great, um, but you were part of the problem as well, and so you're going to stay behind Um, Thank you for all of your work. And in anticipation of leading the people to the promised land, Moses said this to the people. I don't want you to forget what happened 40 years ago. I don't want you to forget the law that was written on stone for your benefit. And so before passing the leadership to Joshua, Moses gathered the people together and read the law again. The Ten Commandments are recorded twice in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20... And in Deuteronomy 5, and in Deuteronomy 5 is when Moses says, I want you to hear this again. I want you to remember the covenant that God made with you, that despite your sinful nature, God loves you and has his well-being, your well-being in his best. He wants you to do well. And here's the ways by which you can strive for that. So shortly before entering the promised land, Moses reminded the people of their covenant relationship with God. And that brings us to the Ten Commandments. I want to talk just a few minutes about why. Why the law? Why didn't didn't it work out a different way? Why did we have to have Ten Commandments? Why did it go into 613 commandments? What was the point of God saying, listen, 
Here's Ten Commandments. This is how you don't sin. Can you even keep these Ten Commandments? I mean, in reality, you might do kind of well. But then extrapolate this out to 613. Are you going to be able to keep the commandments and be holy? Can you keep up your part of the covenant with God? And in culture today, we look at this as, yeah, here's 10 commandments. Forget the 613. Here's the 10 that we all know. Um, I can work really, really, really hard, and maybe I'll be holy. Maybe I can uphold my part of the covenant. But that's a lie that Satan has told us. We've forgotten that this is a unilateral covenant. We've forgotten that God says, listen, I know that you're sinful. And I want you to remember that and run to me. The law is not something by which we would go, I've done that, that, and I'm keeping that, and I'm keeping that, and I'm keeping that. It's a way for us to look at the law and go, I remember. I remember that I'm a sinful person, that I need God so bad, and his grace was so big, it overcame all my sin. And that's why I love the law, because it points me to Jesus. So it works out something like this. God gave it. He gave the law. Here's the facts. He just gave the law. We know Sinai, Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets. He gave the law because mankind tries to live as God, right? From the moment sin entered the world, mankind has repeated this same vain attempt over and over and over again to live without God. And in some cases, to try and become God on our own. That's why Satan fell in the first place, right? I will become like the Most High. I will be exalted. I will sit on high. People will bow before me. Sounds like a toddler who's throwing a temper tantrum. And that's what Satan said before he fell. And that's what we say in our hearts. That's why Adam and Eve ate the fruit. I know what's best for me. I'm going to take care of my own life. It's why they built the Tower of Babel. I will become a mighty nation and I will ascend to the heavens and people will look at me and say, look at how great I am. That didn't work out well for them. It's why Israel demanded kings. We know what's best for our nation. We know what's best for our family. We want kings to rule over us, not God. The law giving was designed to drive us towards God, not away from him. The law-giving was designed to reveal our sinful nature, to show us how we really are. It's a mirror. We look at it and we go, yeah, yeah, I guess I am kind of flawed. I guess I, I'm not perfect. I guess I do need someone to save me. The law-giving was done to identify us as God's people, to set us apart, holy, sanctified, and priestly. Now, here's an example of law. Think of offense. We had a moment this week. Um, we have two dogs, right? We have a dog who doesn't run, and we have a dog that runs. Um, we also have places in our yard where there's no fence. So yesterday, the dog, yesterday, right? Yeah, the dogs were let out. One doesn't run. He's fine. He just sits by the doorstep. The other, he's a puppy. Straight to Tongas. Down across Tongas, down to the docks. By the time we realized where he was, we saw him coming back across Tongas Avenue. Little tiny gray dog blends in with the concrete. Big truck coming, right? I mean, like, we're talking really close to smush on the sidewalk for our little dog, which we love so much. There is a reason that dog owners put fences up. 
It's for the safety and the well-being of the dogs. Parents, we do this for our children, right? You put fences in the yard so that you know that your child will stay in the yard. It's not to prevent them from experiencing the world. It's to prevent them from getting smashed by a car because they just don't know better sometimes. God's law is like that for us. He is a father to us. And he says, I want to give you the abundant freedom to run to your heart's content. But I don't want you to get run over by something you don't see that's coming. So I'm going to set up some fence posts for you. And when you hit a fence post, you're going to know you shouldn't go any further because danger is on the other side. Freedom and safety on this side. In abundance, danger is on the other side. He identifies us as his own and gives us great principles by which to live safely. God gave us law to show us things about ourselves too, our imperfection and our sin. This law puts us in a covenant relationship with God. We get to see the danger of our sin. If I run outside this boundary, smush. There's sin, there's danger. The penalty for sin is death. I don't want that. God, thank you for showing me where I shouldn't run. Shows us that we can't do life without him. In essence, the law was given to be a mirror to us, to show us our imperfection and the need for our salvation. But the law is not the means to salvation, right? You do not get saved by following this perfectly. If you, hear my words very carefully and very lovingly, if you are a freak of nature and can keep all of these things perfectly, that is not how you attain salvation, Great for you for keeping the Ten Commandments, but that is not how you are saved. The law that is known as the Ten Commandments was given to us by a king that shows that we belong to a kingdom, a king who loves us, who gives us guidelines, who says, listen, I want you to know where you can safely run and not run, but you're not saved through this law. You're not saved through obeying this law. You're saved through me, the one who gave you the law. You're saved through me, the one who upholds the unilateral covenant. This law we know is the Ten Commandments. That seems really cold. Ten Commandments from an authoritative God figure who says, I want you to do this and this and this or you don't earn my love. I don't really like the term Ten Commandments very much because it gives the wrong impression. In the original language, it was called the Ten Words. The Ten Words that God had spoken. Um, It was also, in the original language, the most uh, literal translation into English would be this. The Ten Declarations for Covenantal Relationship. Moses went up on Sinai. People were sinning, and God said, I want to give you ten. Ten declarations for covenantal relationship. You want to live in covenant with me? I want to give you ten ideas of how that's done. And it's a covenant between God and man, unilateral, where God says, listen... I'm going to uphold all of this. And you're going to struggle to uphold all of this. And one day, I will uphold all of this perfectly through the God-man, Christ Jesus, on the cross. So that your grace is received from him. Pours down on the cross to you. And his grace is greater than all your sin. And this covenant was down through time. From Adam to Eve to Abraham to Moses. And then to us through Jesus. God gave us this law to point us to Jesus. Now, you can't keep the law. Mankind mankind cannot keep this perfectly. Israel defaulted to the flesh, like instantly. It was like, and they're sinning. They got the law, and they sinned again. They, They repented of the law, and they sinned again. I mean, it was just, and that looks like our life, too. 
if we're honest with ourselves. So what they did was they tried to create a religion, a system by which they could keep the law. Now, we do this in all kinds of ways. We get a vast quantity of information, and we try and systematize it so that we know this category and this category, and we break it down into chunks so that we can understand it better. And this is what they did. Of all of the laws that God gave, there were 613 of them. That's a lot to keep track of. You can't fit that on a bumper sticker. The 613 laws were all of the first five books of the Old Testament, basically, right? Um, They were um, God's will for mankind. They live peaceably with one another, do and don't do these things. There are 365 negative commands. Do not insert command, okay? One for each day of the year is how the Old Testament scribes figured this out. We can remember the 365 do not commands because there's one for each day of the year. So every day of the year, they would recite the one for that day of the year. Do not covet. Do not insert one of the 365 commands. Then there were 248 positive commands. Do this. Remember this. Positive commands, 248. You want to know how they remembered that one? One for each bone and major organ in the human body. Right? They were trying to find a way to remember these commandments so that they could be holy. They missed the point. Many of the 613 commandments can't be observed in the New Testament. Um, Following the destruction of the second temple... Um, they might still remain uh, significant religiously for Jews, um, but according to most scribes, there are 77 positive commands and 194 negative commands that still can be observed today. 26 of them only apply in the land of Israel. So of all of the 613, some total of the law, some of them have passed away simply because the temple is destroyed. Um, Jews will still hold to the fact that there are 77 positive, 194 negative commandments that can be observed today, and a few of them only in Israel. Now, another way they categorized things was through types of law. There were three types of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. That's another great way of thinking about these things. Some of these things are civil. um, Some of these things are ceremonial. Some of these things are just moral, ceremonial. Uh, They were laws that the people of Israel received from God as a means of guiding them in their worship. This included sacrifices for sin, circumcision, priestly duties, rejection of certain foods, um, shellfish, cleanliness code, like cleansing of lepers, these kinds of things. These were ceremonial laws. Do these ceremonies so that you can enter into worship. The ceremonial laws served a temporary purpose, foreshadowed the coming of Christ, right? The ceremonial law, the sacrifice of animals... No longer necessary. Christ was the sacrifice for one and all. That's how we understand it. Then there are civil laws. God gave the nation of Israel civil laws to guide their daily living, political affairs, judicial system. Today, these civil laws and their punishments are no longer applicable, right? They expired when the people of God were no longer determined by their ethnicity or geographic location, but rather through community in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Today, we gather together as churches from every nation, tribe, and language. We are not Israel. We are the church of God, right? So um, today the church doesn't deal the same way with things like Israel once did civilly. 
the penalties have changed and the church deals with sin, as scripture would say, by exhortation and at the very worst possible extreme exclusion from membership, but that's quite rare. Not by stones and fire, as the Old Testament civil code would say. And we're thankful for that, right? Right. Although there is one Old Testament law that says you can take your disobedient child outside of the city and either stone them or leave them there if they disobey you. I still kind of like that one. Um, So (laughs) parents wrestle with that one as you will. Um, We'll pull that out when you need to with your children. Um, Moral laws were the third kinds. God not only gave us moral laws like the Ten Commandments, he wrote them on stone in the Old Testament. Where did he write them? For us. On our hearts, right? The moral law of God does not provide salvation, but it's used as a mirror reflecting the righteousness of God for our own life and a means of restraining evil and revealing what is pleasing to God. Those are the three types of law. But unfortunately, man wants to take the thing that God has designed for good and turn it into something that is perverted from its goodness. A desire for holiness is really, really good. That you, in your heart and mind and soul, would desire to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and and cry out to him and serve him and be holy, that's really good. But when you use this like a checklist, that's really bad. When you use this like a checklist to have checklist Christianity, um, you become what we would call Pharisees. Um, Religiously attempting to keep the law perfectly, that just creates legalism. We read about this in the New Testament, right? The Pharisees were very legalistic. They were perfect and holy, and they never smiled, and they never told a joke, and they wore perfectly white robes, and they're blah. They were boring, okay? Um, And Jesus looked at them and said, you're whitewashed tombs. You might keep the law on the outside, but on the inside, you don't love me. You don't love the reason I gave you the law, and it was to show you your imperfection. In your very attempting to keep the law perfectly, you are breaking the law. You just don't get it, is what Jesus said. The law is not something by which we would say checklist this and checklist that because legalism creates hypocriticalness. People look at the church and go, oh, they say one thing and do another. They talk about a loving God, but they don't act very loving. Well, they can sure keep the law and tell me when I'm breaking it, but and I'm just not feeling the grace that they talk about from Jesus. I don't want anything to do with that. And that's not a great witness for the church to the world Legalism is man's attempt to live a holy life apart from God. It's the simple first sin. I can do this without you. I can live this law, God. You gave it to me. I can live it. I'll do it perfectly. And there's a sin there in itself, and that's called pride. The Pharisees and the hypocritical Christians was that if you kept the law, you're closer to God, closer to salvation, and more holy So ultimately, what God gave to mankind to help them see their need for him, to drive them to him, can become a false God in itself and a stumbling block. But the law shouldn't become a stumbling block. Rather, we should look upon the law and it should lead us to Christ in the gospel by condemning us, by causing us to despair of our own false righteousness. Just as Israel couldn't keep the law, you can't keep it either. You default the same way Israel did. You need a savior. You need to be in a unilateral covenant with Christ Jesus who interceded for you on the cross, wrote the covenant of law and grace through his blood. Christ perfected the law. He lived it perfectly. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite old dead guys, 
said this about the law. There is, perhaps, no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy as to where on... It's so complex language. Basically, what he's saying is this. There is, there is really no easy way to understand where the precise agreement and difference, where Christ and the law intercede. Where does the law of Moses and the law of Christ intertwine? He says it this way. Where is the difference or the sameness between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ? Does Moses' law pass away? Does Christ do a new law? Well... Where does the law end and Christ begin? This is the question for New Testament Christians. Christ lived the law out perfectly, daily, momently, every second, every breath, every action. He lived this law perfectly and humbly. He lived out the law in himself. All of his actions and his words and thoughts were perfection. Everything he did was pleasing to God. Every place that you have broken the law and broken God's heart, Christ has lived the law perfectly and covered your brokenness with his perfection. And he did this in a way that lifts you up, that doesn't demean you. He doesn't do it in a way that the Pharisees would have done it and said, look at the laws that you have broken, you sinner. He says, look at the laws that that sinner has broken. I love that sinner. I'm going to cover that sinner's sins and set them before God perfect and holy and blameless. This is what this does for us. This is what Jesus does for us. You don't earn salvation, it's a gift. His perfection becomes your perfection. He removes the pressure of legalism from your heart. He removes the checklist Christianity mindset from our our default setting. He removes works-based salvation and works-based righteousness from the equation. He doesn't make the job of keeping the law easier, right? I mean, let's be honest about this. 613 laws, difficult. 10 laws, still pretty difficult because all the 613 came out of the 10. But Jesus took it one step further. Um, In Mark 12, he sums up the law. You guys are familiar with this passage. Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the scribes, the ones who wrote the law down and followed the 613 religiously, came up to Jesus and said this, which commandment is the most important? Like, (laughs) I'm going to stump him because nobody knows which commandment. We just keep them all because we don't know which is the most important. And Jesus said this, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Well, easy peasy lemon squeezy, we're down from 613 to 2. Surely we can handle 2, right? The reality of this is if you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, there's nothing harder than those two. (laughs) Those are the two most difficult commandments to live out because every single other commandment falls under those two. Jesus summed it up in two, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes had struggled to assign body parts and days of the week to laws. He said this, forget about all of the confusing details and words. Simply love God and love your neighbor. Then you are upholding the law. 
it's interesting as I studied. I love factoids. I love to geek out on things that you might not ordinarily pick up on. And the more I find, the more I love the scriptures. Um, when you read the original language in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, um, the Ten Commandment monologue, dialogue there, is started with the word God. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Starts off with the word God. And in the original language, it ends with the word neighbor at the end of the Tenth Commandment. The first word of the first commandment is God. The last word of the tenth commandment is neighbor. And how does Jesus sum up the ten commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. I thought it was a really interesting bookend that even in the Old Testament we get the idea of where God is going with this. One of my other favorite old dead dudes, John Calvin, said this, as if we could think of anything more difficult than to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Compared with the law, everything else could be considered easy. This is a difficult law, but this morning we're called to look at the law that God has given. The Ten Commandments, but mostly loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And then loving your neighbor as yourself. We are to look at that. And in that, we are to go, we can't do this without you. We need you, God. We need you to help us love you. We need you to help us Love you day in and day out and every second of every day. And then in that, we need you to help us love our neighbors who A, love you, or B, might not love you. We need help loving them. Without and apart from God, we have no hope of perfection. We might have the law. If you don't have love, you have nothing, Corinthians says. In him, we have perfection in body, mind, soul, and strength. And this morning, as we worship in song and prepare our hearts to receive communion, the altar is wide open. This is the time when you get to gaze upon the law. And you get to look upon the law and use it as a mirror. Just be honest with God. Where have I failed you this week, God? Where do I need your grace to cover my sins? I absolutely need you to come into my life and to make me new again today. Don't want to wait another minute to be refreshed with your Holy Spirit. 